Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 60 through 66. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, if you were with us last week, what we part of what we talked about was this idea of who Jesus is. And the Gospel of John distinguishes itself apart from what we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it focuses, not to say the others ignore this question, but it focuses on this question, who is Jesus? And what Jesus does is he presents himself in seven declarations. It's one thing to say, I think I know what Jesus is, who he is, what he's all about, but it's more impactful, more accurate, for Jesus to tell us who he is. And not that he's discovering himself like many of us are, but he gives them very he gives a very clear picture in seven declarations and one of them we've been covering for the past couple of weeks and we'll continue to do so next week as well uh, Jesus says I am the bread of life now it's not just an important question to understand because in a moment well, as we make our way through this message uh, we're going to look at this idea of what it means to be a disciple because Jesus refers to these people called disciples but he uses it in a very broad sense. And the question that I'm gonna to pose to you in a few minutes is, you know, what kind of Christian are you, follower, churchgoer, whatever you wanna call it? And it's not just impactful or relevant to know where I stand with Jesus, because if the Bible is true, and it is true that Jesus is a one-of-a-kind person, in the Son of God incarnate, and that he is the only way, the only person who can offer eternal life to us, then it is of importance, grave importance, eternal importance. But there are other ways in which this answer to this question is important. We live in a society where the idea and the understanding of Jesus is changing constantly, uh, very fluid. It's It's hard to pinpoint. Depending on the person you speak with, you're probably going to get a different answer. And although the writer of Ecclesiastes is correct to say that there's nothing new under the sun, certainly we're going to get different presentations of it. To give you an example in history, in 1960, John F. Kennedy uh, put in his name as a candidate for the presidency. And Protestants were faced with some sort of a crisis because Christians, a lot of Christians, they vote according to their faith, and they would have vote in a way that honors God and the work that he is doing here, particularly in this country. 
But John F. Kennedy was a Roman Catholic, and I'm not here to um, make a statement about Roman Catholics versus Protestants. But Protestants were asking the question, is he a Christian and can I vote for him? Can he be my president? Now, we move forward a bit to 2012. And in 2012, most people will probably tell you, again, it's, I'm not telling you right or wrong, most people tell you that, yeah, John F. Kennedy, he was on the right side of the whole faith discussion. But in 2012, a senator from Utah by the name of Mitt Romney ran for the presidency. And the question was, are Mormons Christian? And many studies came out saying that Protestant Christians affirmed his faith as no different from their own. Now, I'm not sure, I don't know how familiar you are with Mormonism, but the Mormon Jesus is not the historic Christian Jesus. Very different. To give you one little detail, we do not believe that Jesus is the brother of Satan. They do. We do not believe that Jesus came about from normal procreation processes between the Heavenly Father and the Virgin Mary. We do not believe this. We do not believe that he is simply one of many gods. But on a very superficial conversation, if you have one with the elders and people who uh, espouse Mormon doctrine, they will tell you that we believe in the same Jesus Christ. In fact, officially, they no longer call themselves Mormon. They call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is their official title for their religion. Or if you take the people who knock on your door, uh, I haven't had that experience yet, but we had it many a time back in Pennsylvania. Those people, Jehovah's Witnesses, who knock on your door, and they strike their conversation by asking you things like, have you heard of Jesus? I say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And I would always get the same response, so am I. And I'm thinking, no. Now, sadly, I must confess, I never invited them inside for a nice conversation. Uh, always wanted to, but always never had the time. Uh, but we do not believe in the same Jesus. They believe that in accordance with John 1, if you translate it from the Greek, they believe that Jesus is a God, not the God. They do not believe in the same Jesus. Very different. So this, it's not only important for our own personal journey in faith or to think religiously, but it's important apologetically how we interact with people outside of these walls because they're going to lump much of the American society are going to lump you with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses almost no differently. And so that's important for us to distinguish ourselves. But if we cannot articulate that, then we're in trouble. In fact, you could take that a step further and possibly ask yourself, if I can't even articulate it or distinguish myself from other varieties and understandings of Jesus, do I really know Jesus? Because if my idea is simply generic, I'm here to tell you that I don't believe the Bible says that's good or sufficient. We sang about it. But is that simply just one interpretation of many? Or is it the only way to understand who Jesus is? And in our passage, we looked at Jesus as the bread of life. And Jesus, wonderfully, he would use terms that allow us to connect 
with him. Not concepts or characteristics that were completely foreign to us. So he comes, and the first I am declaration that he has, the first of seven, is this I am the bread of life. Now for us, I, I really don't, it doesn't matter, at least for me, what you replace, even if you wanted to replace the bread word with. It could be work or anything else, anything that you believe is a staple, it's a non-negotiable, it's a necessity of your earthly existence. Now for them, if, if we were just thinking food categories, uh, maybe bread's not in your diet. Um, but for them, their, their idea of food, it, they weren't like us where, I know my wife, but we're, we're gonna ask the inevitable question after service, what are we eating for dinner? They didn't ask that question because it was always the same answer. Bread. Honey, what are we eating tomorrow morning? Bread. What are we eating for lunch? Bread. The same thing. They were in the desert. There wasn't much they were carrying around, and there wasn't a variety of um, cuisines, I guess, they were exposed to as we are today and they have access to. <clears throat> so it was always bread. But that made it really simple. Jesus is bread but a different kind of bread. And what he does is he compares earthly bread to himself. And if you think of the idea of earthly bread, it's there for you, it's needed. Let's say it tastes good. It, it gives you strength. Uh, and particularly if you're walking all the time, if you're traveling as they were in the wilderness, they would have needed sustenance. And it gave them that. And he even furred himself in comparison to manna which was this bread that comes from heaven, which when they ate, not only would it fill their bodies, uh, satisfy their hunger, give them strength, but it would remind them that God is faithful to provide them with what they need. But then Jesus comes along in John 6 and he says, I am completely different from that. I'm just simply better. And the better part is one on the most superficial, simple level, simplest level, is that the bread you normally eat, the food that you eat each and every day, whether it's three times a day or not, that is good for that moment. You will digest it. You will benefit from that digestion. But then it's gone. It, it doesn't serve any purpose beyond that. It it's not like the taste lingers. Even if it's a wonderful meal, maybe the best you've ever had, it doesn't linger. You may actually think you're actually tasting it, but you're not. It's just in the mind. In fact, maybe you're like me where there were restaurants you went to a long time ago and you thought that was the best. And then you go back to it 10 years later and you're like, oh, awful. It's awful. You just remember it in a certain way. So it's only good for the moment, but Jesus is saying, I am eternal. I benefit you eternally. But more than that, with each meal, the problem is it needs to be repeated. Now, the good thing was God was faithful to them to provide bread every morning for them to eat in the wilderness called manna. But the thing with Jesus is we don't have to come back each and every Sunday to be fed because we're hungry. Or that if I don't get fed today, I won't be able to survive spiritually tomorrow. There's this wonderful characteristic of Jesus feeding in that we are always fed once for all. Like that never goes away. But the great thing about that feeding of Jesus that's in our hearts and souls 
is that it continues to benefit us. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't come and listen to a sermon or fall asleep on me. It doesn't mean you shouldn't wake up tomorrow and have your quiet time. It doesn't mean that you don't need the Bible. That certainly are wonderfully, um, it's wonderfully necessary to remind us, to strengthen us, but there's, it's not because there's an emptiness. Whereas with food, earthly food, that is, it goes away. And we've all, we experience this all day, every day, every single one of us. And Jesus says, I am permanent, once for all, of eternal benefit to you. And this idea, this comparison of the earthly temporary and limited versus Jesus, the eternal, um, of greater significance of value, is found throughout Scripture. Let me just give you a few examples. So Mark 8, 36 It's not specifically related to this idea of sustenance, but it connects on a fundamental level. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That the world, even if the world would be acquired by you in all that it can provide, all that it is, it pales in comparison to what can satisfy the soul. And obviously that's in reference to Jesus. If you had a choice between either or, which would you pick? Well, even if you're not a believer today, with any decision, I think you would agree on some level that that which is of longer value, duration, is better than those things that are temporary. Like if, if something was only good for 10 days, that's not as good as something that is good for 10 years. Any of us, I think all of us would agree to that. And here, even all that the world has to offer, all that God provides in the world, that doesn't compare to what Jesus provides to the soul. Uh, There's a quote by Jim Elliott, who was a missionary to Ecuador and tragically died in his preparation to um, share the gospel. And maybe you're familiar with this. It's a really famous quote. He writes... He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And yet, it's funny, isn't it? All of us, regardless of where we are in our faith, maybe we're not believers, we strive so hard to hold on to things that we know eventually will be gone. We know it. Again, even if you don't believe in Jesus, even if you are an atheist, you would admit that in the end, you can't take anything with you when you leave this world. And yet we strive so hard for it. We sacrifice so much for it. And again, I do want to make a disclaimer. I'm not saying, because the Bible doesn't do this, to pit God's wonderful gifts that he's given you. He is the father of lives where every good and perfect gift comes from above. It comes from God. Your health, your relationships, food, creation, anything in this world are gifts from God. So God is not saying you need to abandon that. Now, there may be times where God calls you to sacrifice them, but God is saying, just don't replace me with them and don't think they're better than me. Okay, First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse uh, 7 to 8. And this, may, this is relevant whether you're old or young, rather than rather train yourself for godliness for a while, bodily training is of some value 
godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Again, this is not saying don't exercise. If you're younger, you know, go ahead. Make great use of your youth. I miss mine. Okay, just can't, I can't hack it with my kids anymore in the gym and they make fun of me. Um, and good for them, they should. But um, training your body, pushing your body, being healthy. How many of us who are older, and you may be in my stage of life or similar, and you think about health, and maybe you're better than me, you do more than just think about it, you actually do something about it. But um, it's on your mind, isn't it? Constantly. I gotta wake up and take my meds. I do take a few medications, so I gotta wake up. It's important. Whether or not I eat the double-double, I do think about whether it's good for me. It's just that 99.9% .9 of the time, I probably will eat it anyway, but it's still on my mind. So God is not saying don't worry about that, but he's saying what is more important? And then you can, on a very simplistic level, ask yourself, do you value godliness to the point where you actually invest in it? I mean, some of us put a lot of money into gym memberships, some of us put a lot of time. We go out and buy products. If you want to get big or buff or whatever, we buy equipment. Equipment that we have worked hard to earn money to pay for. You know, we invest all this mental, we, we look up articles on the latest types of exercises, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, maybe in a, gospel well or a sermon or um, gospel community environment will say, yeah, godliness is more important, but do we really put our money where our mouth is? Do we really invest in the eternal significance and value of knowing Jesus? Okay. Now, Jesus refers to a group of people called disciples. And he has used this word in the chapter multiple occasions. However, in this particular instance, in verses 60 to 66, he doesn't refer to the 12 disciples when he says disciples. He doesn't refer to Bartholomew, Judas, John, James, Peter, and those guys. He's actually making a broad statement of people who are following him. Kind of similar to the question, what kind of Christian are you? What brings you here today? Maybe some of you here, as I mentioned last week, you're here because your parents make you. It's inevitable. There are going to be people like that. Maybe you're here because you like religion in your life. Maybe you're here because, you know, you are in need of something in your life and all other avenues have failed. So I'm going to see if Jesus can provide me what I need. I have seen people who were motivated to come to church and consider Christianity because they were unemployed or because they were um, suffering from some sort of illness, they came to Jesus. And I don't mean that in a faith way, they came to church. So these disciples, some of them came because Jesus had fed them. And again, consider, think about it. Back then, they didn't have like a ton of food. You and I probably have more food in our pantries than they could muster up in a year. So they weren't like that. So hunger was a reality, it was a, much broad reality, much as a broader reality for them than it is for us today. So say there are people who 
wanted Jesus to feed them. And he just, they just saw this man feed 5,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish. He's going to feed me for free. That's, that's good stuff. Everybody loves a free meal. Okay, so there are people who are going to be like, I mean, I, I know people who have bluntly said to me, Pastor, this guy took me out to a great restaurant. We were talking uh, about Christianity, and I, I thought the Lord was bringing him closer to faith. And he said, yeah, I don't believe in Jesus. I think it's all just a crock. But I love listening to you. That's why I come to church. I didn't know whether to be flattered or not. I, wasn't, I didn't know whether to be happy or to say, check, please. I, I wasn't sure. Uh, I had one person say, yeah. I'm, I said, what brings you to our church? And he said, oh, my mom wants me to get married. You know, she doesn't want me to marry the girls I've dated, so she wanted me to marry a nice girl, so I'm here at church. You know, we, maybe that's you, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, don't tell anyone if that's you. But... There, there are people come for various reasons. And so these disciples came for different reasons. There are even some who had religious reasons. They thought, oh, could this be the Messiah? But they completely misunderstood the Old Testament prophecies. And they said, no, it couldn't be. Or they were just simply dazzled by the signs and the wonders that he did. But they never looked at him, or very few did. Few looked at him and said, this is the one that was promised who would come and redeem us from our sin. Few did. What is your reason why you're here? What do you seek from Jesus? What is he going to give you? Because if it's other than the provision of eternal life that has great impact and importance and value today, you're not going to find it. Jesus is not here to give it. And hopefully you will be on a path, if not come to greater clarity, in seeing who Jesus is. Again, who is Jesus? Bread of life, not someone or something who simply provides me earthly bread. Now, these disciples, when they heard Jesus' teaching, the way it's in, translated, it says that they found his teaching hard. It's not to be understood as difficult. As I shared last week, my son is, he was a nuclear engineer major, and when he tries to explain that stuff, I'm like, I'm done after 10 seconds, no more. I just, I just trust you. You know, that's what we eventually have to do that. And um, It's not that. It's like my brain just can't wrap its mind or wrap itself around it. It's not that type of difficulty. It's more to use, um, and I, I was teaching middle school and high school, it's more the sense of being out of pocket, if you're familiar with that phrase. Jesus was just saying stuff that was ridiculous, almost a mockery, scandalous, uh, for shop value almost. It just was like, no way. That's just, no way. It's impossible. It wasn't, they, they understood on some level what he was talking about, but it wasn't that that is being referred to when they found it hard. It was outrageous. It was offensive. And why would it be offensive? So these Jews were saying, you are basically telling me that everything that I have come to understand and believe in that has defined me as a follower of God because I believe that I'm a child of God, you're saying that I'm wrong. That's pretty offensive. To come to someone and tell them, actually, you do not believe in God. 
I would be very offended. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Or for them to say, well, you need to give us a sign. And Jesus is saying, you've already received all the signs you need. I've given them. Or for them to say, how do we work for this? What can I do? And Jesus is saying, it's nothing you can do. You just got to believe. But on top of that, he's going to up the ante of offensiveness and say, oh, there's, you can't just simply muster up the ability to say, I'm going to believe. I know this is, this is the most challenging part of Christianity. There's nothing you and I can do, as Pastor Sam preached two weeks ago, uh, God is the one that draws people. So it's so easy to come out of that type of message and say, oh, so there's nothing I need to do. God wants it to happen. It'll just happen. But the interesting thing is that God never works or he never draws, use that word, he never draws outside of the presentation of the gospel. It's not that suddenly you're going to be sleeping in your bed and bam, he's going to draw you. It's always in context with the word of God, with the gospel. But that's offensive, isn't it? You cannot do anything to be saved. People get really upset at that. In the church, even with Christians. I remember I was in a classroom where that type of conversation came up. And one woman, she stood up and she was in tears. And she said, if that's the God of the Bible, I don't want to believe in him. It's offensive. There's so much there that is offensive. But why is all this so offensive to these people? And it can be even to us. So one thing that we need to keep in mind is that you may even be a believer today. You may be one who believes in Jesus and you say, I, I say amen to the bread of life. He is the way, the truth, and life. He is the resurrection of life. All this stuff, amen, 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 amen. However, if we believe that we know, and we don't need to be reminded or told again, the Bible warns us that's when we're going to fall. And it also warns us that that in and of itself can be a form of self-righteousness and not humility, and we don't benefit from the presentation or the reminders of the gospel. See, you and I who are believers in this room, who we're not any better than anybody else. Our struggle still is with sin. The residual nature, theologians called it the mortification of sin. It's kind of like, and this is a really silly illustration, kind of like um, um, my parents, they still live in Philly, and uh, we lived in that home since the 80s. It was already 25 years old. It's an old house, and my parents did not believe in the term extermination. And so we had a lot of bugs. And the one bug that used to creep me out was the, the, the centipede-like bug with the long legs. And you may be familiar with them, and you step on them, you squash them, but the legs keep moving. That's gross. Um, it's kind of like that. The tentacles of sin are still moving in your heart. In fact, so much so, the greatest Christian that most people um, would recognize, the Apostle Paul, in his own letter and admi admission, he said, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. Sin, it's still a foe that you need to keep in mind. In fact, there's so many different ways to describe the power and the nature of sin. 
But here's one of them. You may be familiar with Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, Satan is tempting Adam and Eve. And he's talking about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God says, look at it, it's beautiful, it may actually taste good, but you're not allowed to eat it. And Satan says, I'm going to tell you why God doesn't want you to eat it. Because God knows once you eat it, you will be like God. It's this God complex. That's what sin is. So even for me as a pastor, a theologian, whatever you want to call me, a Christian, when I disobey God, that is my God complex popping its head. Like the whack-a-mole. It pops up its head and it says, God, no. I appreciate what you want me to do. I will make that decision. God, I appreciate what you're telling me to do, but I think I know better. That's sin. And that's why the gospel is so offensive. Because the gospel is reminding us that we are not in control. We are not all that we like simply to think we are. And that's why we, not, we need to be reminded of one, in a very blunt fashion, as Paul does in so many different places, God is God and we're not. Here's another, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images of resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. Sin basically is an exchange, a different exchange from what we heard earlier. This, this exchange is we were created to recognize that God is the creator who gave us all these things. He gets all the glory. Kind of like if you went to an art museum, and you saw, let's say, you didn't know it was this, but you saw a Rembrandt painting, and I told you I did it. I steal that glory. Let's say you actually believe it. You're like, wow, that is amazing. But God deserves that glory. None of this is mine. None of this is from me. There's nothing I can do about all this. And yet, in so many different ways, we claim and we steal, we rob God of that glory. God is the creator. But everything that, that's in our lives that God gives us, they're there to, for us to enjoy. They're good. The creation story, God says, it is good. So enjoy it. But just remember where it comes from and for what purpose it was given and made. To give him glory. But here's the great thing about that. God's not about I get glory and you just have to tough it out and you don't benefit in any way. When I get the glory, you actually get the most delight and pleasure. You get the most there's still a little bit that can be taken and enjoyed if it's not directed to God. But God says, I want to give you the most delight, pleasure, and benefit of all these things. Do it to my glory. Okay, so here, but when we, we wrestle with that exchange, we treat ourselves like we're the creator. And so when God comes along and tells me, no, it's the spirit as he says in verse 66, it's the spirit that will change my heart. God, no, I will believe that. When we get very offended easily, like an example, after, usually after a message or a Sunday, I'll ask my wife, how did I do? And I mean it out of humility. And she'll say, wonderfully, very humbly, graciously, well, I thought this, you could have done that. 
And then suddenly I'll say, have you ever preached? <laughs> but I'm the one that asked her. You know, and I, I know it. I, I see it. The question's like rising to my lips and it still comes out. Like Paul, we do what we don't want to do and we don't do what we want to do. So we still wrestle with that. So how does the offensiveness of Jesus and the gospel become pleasant and desirable and attractive? Was well, when we're reminded by his word of who he is. And on a logical, maybe rational sense, consider it. The gospel is telling us that we are in this helpless position, unworthy position because of our sin, because of what we are, what we've done, and here is God who very graciously, compassionately, uh, mercifully, offers a solution. And so many times, one side of this whole grace issue is very offensive. Why would you show mercy to people who don't deserve it? Well, the wonderful thing is, God has the right to do that, and when I benefit from it, when I receive it, we praise God for it. We see the beauty of grace. Sure, when you're just focused on that sin, you're like, no, it's, they're not worthy. I'm not worthy, but God out of his love, what a wonderful story, not because of anything I am or can do, have done, simply because he is love. He allowed Jesus to die for me. The gospel tells me that this love is not something that is temporary. This love is not something that is fickle. Certainly there are times where I've shown great affection to my children, and then times where they knew, stay away. God never says, stay away. And that love is offered to you. And there's so many more. I could go on and on and on and on. But the gospel in Jesus Christ, who tells us, discloses to us, admits to us that he is the bread of life, the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through him, but I'm giving myself to you, that I'm not simply giving you bread out of my pocket or out of my closet or pantry. I'm giving you myself. And the manner in which I give you myself is not easy, but it will require sacrifice and death. It will require me to do something that you cannot do, which is trust in the word of my Father, where my Father told me that in three days I will raise you up, but you will lie there in the dark until then. And Jesus, in complete faithfulness, waited 72 hours, and God raised him from the dead. Because of everything he's done, as we just sang, is now mine. You know, when I go to Jesus, I, I, I wish I could tell you this from, that I came up with this, but it's from Alistair Begg. When you go to see Jesus, and let's say Jesus actually asks you, or God asks you, why should I let you in? It all depends on the pronoun. Is it I? Is it me? Or is it him? I mean, that's a great story. Unlike any other that you will find or ever hear of, and it's only in scripture. And so that which is offensive now becomes desirable, attractive, and pleasant. And it's one that is needed. Again, as a reminder to me, to you if you're one who has already placed your faith in the Lord, or if you're one who hasn't. And I'll close, I promise to close with this one really short challenge to you. If you haven't placed your faith in the Lord, 
you know and I know that the things that you place all your eggs in today, they're not going to be valuable tomorrow. Your work, like you pursue education to get to college, to get that job, and then in the end, you will simply be asking, what next? Or what was it for? You know that. That's indisputable. And Jesus, Jesus here is saying, I am the bread of life who will satisfy you for eternity. And I hope you will consider that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that what we cannot do, you simply didn't leave us to be helpless, but you offer mercy and compassion. You offer your son. You offer something that we are not worthy of. You offer your son. You offer something that just simply, that doesn't simply satisfy today and maybe tomorrow, but something that is of eternal value we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that even though it was costly, even though it would require his life, he did it anyway. And he did it for us. He did it for your glory. I pray, Lord, that for those who struggle in their faith today, that you will strengthen them with Christ and his word. For those who are looking and simply trying to fill their lives with earthly bread. Holy Spirit, would you do that which no preacher can do? Open their eyes to see who Jesus is and grant them faith. In your name we pray, amen.